There are studies looking at endothelial dysfunction, which is the ability of your arteries to dilate uh, after consuming oil and usually a large, large amount of oil. And it is true that certain types of oils might impair the ability of your arteries to dilate for a certain uh, amount of time after meals. But the thing is that postprandial, that post-meal um, endothelial dysfunction has never been shown to actually contribute to, to cardiovascular disease. Now, if you have endothelial dysfunction just at rest, just at, at like fasting, you wake up in the morning, your arteries are already messed up, then you've got problems. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hello and welcome. I'm super excited to introduce my guest today, but first, I just wanted to thank you for tuning in. I know there are tons of podcasts out there, so just know I truly appreciate being here. I hope you enjoy this episode and stick around for more to come. I have many great guests lined up. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Nagra, a naturopathic doctor based in Vancouver, British Columbia, who is a passionate advocate for evidence-based nutrition as medicine. After struggling with various health issues throughout his childhood, he turned to a plant-based diet, which improved nearly every health concern he had. Fast forward, and these days, he is continuously striving to further his education. And now, through social media, public speaking, his volunteer work with nutritionfacts.org, and his clinical practice, he aims to educate others on how they too can improve their health like he did years ago. Dr. Nagra graduated from the Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine after completing his Bachelor's of Science in Microbiology at the University of Victoria. He holds additional board certifications in intravenous therapies, prescriptive authority, and acupuncture, and a plant-based nutrition certification from Cornell University and the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies, where he has also authored multiple articles on the subject. Using an evidence-based approach, he creates individualized treatment protocols for every patient based on their health goals and unique lifestyles. In this conversation, we talk about Dr. Nagra's strategy for staying up-to-date on all the latest nutrition and chronic disease research, his tips for evaluating the methodology of a study, and how he integrates plant-based nutrition into his practice. Then we dive into some areas of controversy within the plant-based community, specifically the effect of dairy on bone health, whether cheese is addictive, if all oils are unhealthy, omega-3s in heart health, and the clinical reversal of atherosclerosis with a plant-based diet. There's so much packed into this one. Please enjoy. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the Plant Field Podcast. Thank you for making the time to fit this in. I know you're incredibly busy right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, it's been a busy, busy summer. Yeah. Um, so we were originally acquainted as fellow volunteers with nutritionfacts.org, and it's been incredible to not only watch your practice in Vancouver take off, but to really see um, how clearly you share information on social media and through public speaking. Um, so I'm just curious, what's been the most enjoyable part of your journey, I guess, over the last few years? Um, well, I mean, as far as you know, growing my page or my Instagram page and like getting these um, invitations to speak and stuff... Um, I never planned on that. Like that wasn't, I didn't think that anything like that was going to happen, but then I, I had, you know, some really, I guess, well-known, well-respected people in the plant-based community, like sharing a lot of my content and it kind of blew up. And, and so like that, that's really cool to see that happen. But I think the coolest part is when I get like messages from people talking about how, how informative and helpful my information is, or when, uh, you know, someone's confused about something or they see some like, you know, like anti-plant-based you know, um, post, you know, just bashing plant-based diets, they always like tag me and they're like, Oh, you should talk to this person. It's just funny. Cause they like trust my, you know, my opinion on that. Um, I think that's the coolest part for me. 
Yeah, it's awesome. I seriously use your Instagram as a resource and I don't know how the how you have the energy to get into the debates you do sometimes, yeah. but it's admirable for sure. Yeah, I, I haven't uh, I haven't shared a lot of those in a while because honestly, the, the most uh, taxing part is cropping and editing and like putting it all together so people can see it, like the, the different messages or comments and things. Um, so, I, ha- I mean, it happens all the time. You guys only really see a small fraction of it. Yeah, no, I love how transparent you are with it. Um, so I have a f- few things I want to really touch on, but maybe before we get into it, just really quickly, can you just share your own plant-based story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, when I was younger, I was you know, 15, uh, I had a personal trainer, I was training for football, I also played soccer, and I played a little bit of everything uh, back then. And um, you know, I had some health issues as a kid, I was overweight, I had asthma, allergies, and so on. And um, he, my trainer, really promoted like plant-based nutrition, plant-based diet. And uh, I didn't take them too seriously for a while until um, he wanted me to do a food diary. So he wanted me to record everything that I was eating for a period of you know, a couple of weeks or so. Um, and I just thought like, he's going to see my diet. It's so bad. I don't want him to see that. So I had to, uh, yeah, I just changed my diet on the spot. I got rid of all the dairy, got rid of a lot of the junk food, um, ate a lot more plants, of course. And I just started feeling better, started losing weight, skin cleared up, allergies and asthma felt better. Um, and so I thought, okay, maybe there's actually something to this. And, and over time, I, I just continued to learn more and more about it until eventually, um, a couple of years later when I was uni- in university and, and kind of sliding the back, uh, back the other way with you know, cafeteria food and whatnot, there was just a point where I was like, okay, I'm not feeling as good as I know I can. I'm just going to go all in a hundred percent. And I uh, just did it overnight. Crazy. Um, and it's just like, how long has it been now? Like how many years? Uh, I know it's been a bit for you. About 10 and a half. Crazy. Well, you're looking good for it, for sure. Um, All right. So for those that don't know, you're a naturopathic doctor. And I just want to touch on quickly, in Canada, how does a naturopathic doctor differ from a general medical doctor? Um, I wouldn't even say just in Canada. I'd say it depends on the province as well um, within Canada. So regulations vary province to province. Uh, In British Columbia, where I am, I would say we have probably the broadest scope. Actually, not even probably. We definitely have the broadest scope. Um, so I can do the most, like I have prescriptive authority here. I can prescribe medications. Obviously I do a lot of diet counseling and that, um, I can do various injection therapies. There's all sorts that, that are at my disposal. Um, and the general idea is that we, we are primary care in the sense that we'll treat and, and see a lot of the same sorts of conditions that a, a primary care physician would. Um, and I can prescribe medications as need needed, as I mentioned. But I also have a very large focus on those diet and lifestyle factors. And that at its core is, is I think, kind of the basis of um, what naturopathic medicine or the foundation that it's built on. Um, from there, it expands out to different modalities. I mean, I, I do a lot of physical therapies for like injuries and, and that as well. Um, so there, there's all sorts that we can do there. But at, at its core, I, I think it really is lifestyle medicine, if you, you know, think about it, the way that that has been kind of uh, branded or or. Uh, thought of in the United States. We don't really have that here in Canada yet, but that is essentially um, how I choose to practice. And I think at our core, how we're best. Yeah. So I guess when do you, like, would you suggest someone come see you versus just bringing up an issue with their family doctor? Um, Like if they're wanting both some of the, you know, medical guidance and say nutrition lifestyle guidance, I'd say I'm a good balance of both of those. As a, as a naturopathic doctor, I, I have access to um, both of those uh, modalities. Uh, whereas if you're to see a GP, I mean, obviously they're fantastic with emergency situations and and uh, um, 
you know, for, for as far as like medication, secondary prevention of, of various diseases and all of that. Um, if you're looking for more in-depth nutrition information, either you get a referral to say a dietitian uh, from them, um, or you get very kind of base level nutrition information from the, the GP. It's not a knock on the GPs. It's just not really a part of what they learn. Um, whereas I, I'd say I'm a bit in the middle uh, of both of those fields. No, that's super interesting. I'm always like passion, like curious and like how the different medical professionals, like mm-hmm. everything overlaps, but yeah, exactly. everyone, ha- everyone has their expertise for yeah. sure. And I work with GPs all the time. You know, if we're co-managing patients, uh, if I need to, I'll send a, a letter out to the, the GP and just say, Hey, this is what I was doing. And this is what I found. Maybe we should investigate, you know, X, Y, Z. And, and, you know, typically you get good responses that way as well and can work together. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Um, so I know you're quite well known for plant-based nutrition and lifestyle medicine in Vancouver and throughout Canada. So I'd imagine a lot of your patients already come to you kind of knowing mm-hmm. that, but let's say you have a brand new patient. What's your, who might be a little skeptical about adopting a plant-based diet or some of the changes that you're kind of suggesting, mm-hmm. um, just to introduce people to it, what's your go-to spiel for like a whole food plant-based diet? Um, it depends on why they're coming in, right? So if mm-hmm. it's, you know, some people come to me just wanting to dive right in, but some people come to me with, oh, I'm, I'm pre-diabetic. I just got diagnosed uh, pre-diabetes. I'm at risk of you know, needing to go on medications and all that. Um, some people are like, oh, I have high cholesterol. Doctor wants me to, to do X, Y, and Z. What do you think of that? Uh, and I'm, for the record, I'm very like pro-statin for prevention or treatment in, in those cases. But um, if, if um, you know, if we're talking about cardiovascular disease, I'd be like, look, uh, we have a ton of data and, and depending on how into it that they are, it might even go through the specifics, but generally I'll say you have plenty of data on plant predominant to plant exclusive diets and risk of cardiovascular disease. So, um, we know very consistently that adopting a Mediterranean or very plant-based diet reduces risk of cardiovascular disease by, um, if we're talking about like the Leon diet heart study by like three quarters, um, and we also have uh, Ornish's study, which was closer to a vegan diet, very close to a vegan diet. You know, the, the group that didn't undergo all the lifestyle changes had like two and a half times the risk of having a cardiac event. And these are really sick people. Uh, and I'll just suggest that, look, there's the Mediterranean diet. There's the whole foods plant-based diet. Um, there's a, a variety in between. And basically each step that you make towards that, you're going to notice a benefit. Um, and so I often start really small with patients. Um, you know, if, if they're having uh, difficulty transitioning, I might or, um, you know, adopting these changes or just the thought of it seems like too much. Sometimes I'll just say, let's start with breakfast. Just, just nail that. We'll, we'll do that for you know a couple of weeks or so until you feel really comfortable. Then we'll move on to the next meal. Then we'll move on to the next meal. But as far as the actual feel I give, it totally depends on the situation. No, that's understandable. Um, do you find often a lot of patients are into knowing the research? Like you're so good at just like <laughs> stating studies, but like, oh, um, what do it, you get? Uh, I get a mix. Um, yeah. Uh, I get a mix. I definitely get some that are really into it. Uh, in which case I have a big Google drive of all my <laughs> studies and stuff. I'll like pull them up as we go. I'll show them the figures and we'll go through it. Um, so that happens sometimes. Cause I do, that's another thing about my practice. Is I have a lot of time I spend with patients, like an initial visit will be an hour as opposed to like 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so I have time to do that, but, uh, I don't know the exact percentage. I'd say there's, there's a number of them that really want to see all that stuff. But then a lot of them are just like, Oh, I trust you. <laughs> 
Yeah, and go from there. <laughs> no, that's fair. I, I personally love hearing it all. Um, I just don't know how you you have such a memory for it. And one of the things I admire about you is you're so up to date on all the research. Um, and that was actually one of my questions is how do you manage oh, to stay my. up to date on yeah. every new article that comes out? Um, okay, so there's a couple things. For starters, I'm involved with a lot of, you know, I follow a lot of people on Twitter and Instagram. I have some close friends who are very plugged into the nutrition space. So we're always chatting. A new study comes up, we'll send it to each other. Even if it's an old study we just discovered, you know, we'll send it to each other and go that way. But the real, you know, way that I, I stay on top of things is I, on PubMed, you can, uh, for those of you who don't know, PubMed is how you search for, or like the main database by which you search for, um, you know, research. Um, so on, day, on PubMed, you can register an account and that can be a link to your email. And then you can plug in certain search terms. So I have like a search for plant-based diets. It's like searching for plant-based diet, vegan, vegetarian. I might've had a couple other terms in there and I actually have it set to email me every single day with the new studies that come up. So if there's anything plant-based related, um, I'm going to get that email the you know, following day, basically, or even the day up, uh, the morning up. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, there's nothing. Sometimes there's one or two, maybe three. That's That's pretty common. Once in a while, like I had one a couple of days ago, it was like 11 or 14 or something. It was like a whole bunch that you got to go through. And that's just the one term. I also have other searches set up. So I have one for nutrients, which goes through like the saturated fat, uh, cholesterol, polyunsaturated fat, carbohydrates, fiber, a whole bunch of them listed out. I have one for beverages, which goes through like sugar sweetened beverages, uh, alcohol, tea, coffee, and so on. I have another one for diseases and this one gets really overloaded because it's like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and so on. Cause it's not just nutrition related, like I'm getting everything there. Um, and then I, I think I have one more and I can't think of what it is. Um, but basically I have those that I go through once a week. And so I'll just search them. I have them all preset. I'll search them once a week, be like, I don't know, 5,000 new studies or whatever. And then I, I limit them to, okay, I only want to see the meta-analyses, the observational research, the randomized controlled trials, I'll limit it to what I actually, uh, systematic reviews, what I actually want to see. Um, and then that might whittle it down to like a few hundred. And then I scroll through, there's 10 per page. So I'll just scroll through and I'll look at the titles. If there's anything that catches my eye, I'll click on it. I'll save it. I'll go through, I save them all. And I got a whole bunch of, of tabs open. And then I go through them one at a time to see if I want to, you know, download the full version and go from there. That's how I do it. Um, Sometimes if I miss a week or something, it's like ridiculous because you get a lot within a couple of weeks span. So I try to stay on top of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a kind of uh, explanation for how I, I try to keep up. No, that's amazing. I've been <laughs> so curious for so long. You have such a system. Um, <laughs> so when you are, when you do decide on reading a study, um, reading through it, when you post about it, you're very, it's very clear that you try and be as unbiased as possible and you show both sides of the argument. I'm just wondering if you have any strategies to ensure you're staying open-minded. Um, I don't know. It's just like, I, I don't, I think it hurts our cause to, if you say something that's wrong and I'm sure I say stuff that's wrong here or there, but if you say something that's inaccurate and, and clearly biased in your favor, um, people can point that out. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. If they do, it doesn't look so good. Um, so I'd rather be more balanced in my approach. So I try not to make really strong claims. You also have to look at, you know, how are the authors wording some of this stuff? Sometimes they'll, they'll, um, say, oh, we have, you know, we have a certain level of uncertainty for something. We can't be positive. Like you got to take those into account, but I don't always 
side with the author's opinions on, on certain things, just the way that they write. Sometimes they can be biased too. Um, but you have to just look at like the level of certainty behind the evidence, uh, be real with that. Don't overstate things. Um, and like, I think actually it's an advantage to know your bias. Um, cause I know I'm, I, I'm vegan. I, I know that I would love for the evidence to show that that's the best way to be. Um, I've seen, I've interacted even with a lot of people in the nutrition space who claim simply because they eat everything that they are unbiased, right? They, they have like this unbiased bias. (laughs) It's like that we need a term for it literally because it it happens so often where you get these people who claim that all the vegans are biased, all the keto people are biased, but I'm unbiased because I'm in this like moderation camp or something. Um, and they're honestly the worst ones to deal with. And they're probably the worst offenders when it comes to bias because I think they don't even realize it, but I can tell when I'm talking to them how biased they are in favor of inclusion of basically everything. You, you try to talk about, oh, this particular food group is, is harmful or this particular food is harmful. And they're like, no, it's not. Like just because they don't want that to be seen as harmful. And usually the, what we call mental gymnastics that they do to justify it are um, very clear in showing their bias. Yeah, it's super fascinating. We could get like way into the weeds on that, but I agree with you there. I almost think papers should have authors disclosing more than just funding. It's almost like you need to disclose like what are your interests, what are your, what are you passionate about? Because yeah, it can come through for sure. It's not even that. It's it's a lot of people reporting on it after the fact too. Like a lot of the the like online nutrition space, some very big name, uh, you know, highly followed people who claim to be unbiased who. I think tend to be very biased in their approach. Hmm. Well, I commend you for trying to show both sides of it. It's very, I find it clear when I'm reading through um, your posts. And that's one of the reasons I recommend people check out your page. And I look there for resources if I need a reference, but um, just for anyone else that might be reading through a study, if they want to look at the original research, are there any quick points that you'd suggest that they look at, like anything they should check? Like, I think everyone knows that they should maybe look at the funding source, but are there any other quick hits that you'd suggest so, they look at? So I actually don't think funding source is all that important. Okay, um, cool. I, I think what it indicates is that um, you you might need to take a closer look at the study, but if mm-hmm. it's funded by industry and overall, like the methods that they used are good, I don't see any reason to think there's an issue. Um, I I don't think, I I wouldn't discount a study simply based on funding. Um, The funding is sort of the cherry on top if if it's a really flawed study. Um, What I, so I do suggest looking at the methods section. I mean, just looking at how do they do these methods where uh, if they're doing a trial where the uh, people measuring uh, the participants, were they blinded to it? There's all, all these other things you can look at, but that gets pretty technical. If we're talking about someone who, isn't super plugged into their research and they want to just kind of learn. Um, I would say one of the really important things to do is to compare the baseline statistics of the participants. So most studies, they'll actually report probably the first table in the whole study will be baseline um, uh, baseline information on the, the participants. So you'll look at, okay, those, if we're talking about red meat, those who eat, ate the least red amount of red meat, these are, you know, the amount of uh, their education level, um, uh, you know, the overall socioeconomic status, uh, the amount that they exercise, the amount that they drink, smoke, and so on. Um, and then you'll go across and those with the highest meat uh, intake, same thing. And, and uh, you can kind of see trends there in like, are they, are they um, you know, well-matched? Are they not? And if we're talking about a randomized controlled trial, they should be matched. If they aren't matched, that's a problem. 
Um, now, if we're talking about observational research, where you're just looking at a bunch of people who have followed various dietary patterns, you want to then look at um, what confounders they adjusted for. So this looks at you know which characteristics that I just discussed were actually matched up in the participants. So um, did they look at people who smoked the same amount and who did the same amount of physical activity and did the same amount of um, or had similar income levels or whatever? If you make sure that they're all um, they're making sure that they're adjusting for all those factors, then again, it gives it more of an even playing field. So you can see what the impact of the specific intervention or the specific food has. I think that is like the biggest thing for um, people who are new to it to understand is that um, those two factors get rid of a lot of issues if they're in check. Um, and then there's still a lot of other issues that can, can take hold, but those are like the big ones. I think that if, if they aren't um, taking care of all that, then it's useless information. Okay. No, that's good to know. And that involves reading beyond the abstract for sure. So trying to download the full paper when possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love all that. But, um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is a while back, you did an Instagram post that really caught my attention. So it was, um, on the things that you've changed your mind about. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to discuss it further for two reasons. Um, one, I just loved how transparent it was. Um, again, you're, you change your opinion when the research changes, and I think more people need to do that. And two, um, some of the things you were talking about were super interesting, and I learned a few things. Okay. So um, I think the first one was dairy and bone health. So maybe if you just want to like discuss that a little bit, um, yeah. what you thought before, <laughs> what you think now, and then I might have some follow-up questions. Yeah, so there's some uh, there are some studies, observational studies, looking at uh, dairy intake across various uh, countries, and you know you always hear the thing about how you know the countries that consume the most dairy also have the highest fracture rates. And even when you adjust for a lot of factors, there you still find those consuming the most dairy have higher fracture rates. The issue is the countries with the higher dairy consumption also tend to be the countries with the lowest sun exposure, meaning that they typically are the places where they have lower um, vitamin D status, which is important for calcium absorption. Um, and when you look at um, uh, fracture risk uh, along, you know, uh, and, and you make sure you control for the vitamin D level, there's no other um, risk of fracture there. So this fracture risk attributed to dairy consumption actually seems to be confounded, one of those confounding variables I was talking about, mm-hmm. by vitamin D status. Um, so it actually doesn't seem to be the case that dairy leads to fracture risk and you know, it ends up being a source of calcium, so it could actually be beneficial, but you can get your calcium from other sources as well. You can get it from you know, fortified plant milks and tofu and so on. Okay. No, I like that because it's, again, it's a con argument that's you hear it over and over again, mm-hmm. in the vegan community. Um, and I think, uh, one of the mechanisms people like to say is that it's because the, um, the acidic dairy, it actually yeah. leaches calcium from the bone. So is there any evidence for that? No. Um, I, I actually think I don't want to misquote this, but I think they've done studies where they place tracers on the calcium and it, and you can tell that it's not excreting calcium from your like bone tissue. Uh, it's more, uh, if you're excreting any, it's from, uh, it's from the calcium you're actually intaking. So I don't think, uh, I don't think there's really anything to, to stand on there. Yeah, no, fair enough. I think Dr. Gregor actually has a video on that as well. Yeah. He, he debunked yeah. it in one of his, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there, I think just one other thing I heard is that, um, dairy again, being acidic causes like, um, acidic load in the body that can, that can actually lead to muscle wasting as you mm. age. Is there no 
I haven't, okay. I haven't seen anything supporting that yet. No, that's good. Um, and then one of the other things I want to ask while we're on the subject of dairy is, do you recommend people look for a source of K2 in their diet? Um, no. So here's the thing. Um, so, well, you can make K2 from K1 and your bacteria produces K2 as well. Uh, K1 is found in plant foods for those listening. K2 is found in a couple places, can get it from animal products, especially cheese. You can also get it from um, like natto, fermented soybean is, is the highest source. Uh, now with K2, there are two different types. There, well, no, there's multiple different types, but there's two main different types, MK7 and MK4. MK7 is what you find in natto. MK4 is what you find in animal products. And funny thing is you actually don't absorb MK4. So you don't actually absorb the type in animal products unless you're taking absurdly high doses, which you would really only get in the supplement. Or if you're absolutely pounding goose liver, <laughs> you might be able to get enough <laughs> because goose liver is very high. Um, outside of that, yeah, you're just not going to absorb it. Um, so there is no reason to think there's any, um, uh, any real benefit there. You get a little bit of MK7 and, and some of the other, like uh, some fermented dairy products, but very little. Uh, whereas natto is a really good source. Um, now, as far as K2, I haven't seen really any research suggesting even benefit from um, supplementing, except possibly for reducing fracture risk in postmenopausal women. So in postmenopausal women, I do sometimes suggest a, a K2 supplement for that reason. Okay. Yeah, no, it's just one of those fringe arguments I hear sometimes. Um, last question on the dairy and the calcium. Are there any patient populations where you would recommend a calcium supplement, um, to prevent like osteoporosis down the road, or are you really striving for your patients to get their calcium from whole plant sources or fortified milks? Um, if, if they're hitting at least like 700 milligrams or so of calcium uh, a day, I'm not too concerned about it. I mean, the recent Adventist health study did find that uh, supplementing calcium and vitamin D did prevent fracture risk in vegans. Um, so potentially for uh, particularly um, older women, uh, there could be benefit there to calcium supplement as well, especially given that they probably aren't going to be eating as much, um, uh, you know, in later years. And, and uh, at least in that study, they tended to be uh, smaller, if I recall correctly. So um, there might be, depending on how much they're consuming, uh, but that's going to be, I think, a very individual sort of uh, discussion that I would have to have. Oh, sounds great. So while we're on the subject of dairy, um, one of the other topics that you um, was in your Instagram post um, that you changed your mind on was the mm -hmm. fact that cheese is maybe not addictive. And yeah. again, oh. yeah, it, <laughs> go on. It's a little bit, a little bit different. So okay, sorry. It, I wasn't, I wasn't saying that it's not addictive. I was saying mm -hmm. it is not addictive in virtue of the mechanisms that people think it is. Okay, perfect. Can you elaborate a bit? <clears throat> yeah. So there's a, a thought that, um, cheese is addictive because it contains, or it contains either compounds or compounds that can be turned into this compound called casomorphins. Uh, now, casomorphin, caso from casein, morphin, like morphine, it's an opioid. Um, so these compounds can bind to opioid receptors in our brain, and they can activate this sort of addictive kind of response. The issue is when we consume these foods and they pass our digestive tract and resorb them, they're no longer functioning as they were. They're broken down into uh, small peptides or amino acids. Um, that then get, um, get uh, absorbed into our bloodstream and then we have to go to our brain and pass through the blood-brain barrier to get in and bind to receptors. It's just not making it all the way there. Um, we actually have animal studies looking at uh, casomorphins and their impact on brain activity as well. And they only seem to be able to cross the blood-brain barrier and act on uh, those opioid receptors if they're injected directly. 
um, into the bloodstream. Uh, through oral intake, uh, there's just no evidence of that being the case. But foods like um, cheese that are, say, very fatty and salty and, and rich, they can be addictive for other reasons. Um, foods, and addictive might be even the wrong term to use, but they can be very pleasurable anyway um, because of the high fat content, the sodium, um, the, the texture and the mouthfeel uh, seems to be one of the driving factors. So there are other reasons for that. Um, it just doesn't seem to be the, the kind of opioid response. And actually the study that's always referenced for that compared pasta with cheese sauce versus I think it was pasta with tomato sauce. And both seem to activate like a pleasure response. Yet that's always used as evidence that it's the, the case of morphins in the cheese when it wasn't any more pleasurable or whatever than the, the other options. So it's just, it's a bit of a kind of dishonest way to frame it when you, know, you got to look at all the results. No, that's, that's super fascinating. So if you're injecting cheese, you have a problem. Yeah, you might. I mean, you've got other <laughs> problems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so if, okay, so cheese can be highly addictive for other reasons, the salt, the fat. Um, if you have a patient that's like, I can't get, give up the cheese, what do you say to them? Um, look, if, if that's the only thing we're working on, then, then I'd have a different answer. But if, if uh, we're working on overall dietary change, which is normally what I'm doing, I would not target that yet. That would be like end of the road, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if we are targeting that, I would even uh, potentially in the short term uh, try like cheese alternatives or, um, you know, if you can find like lower saturated fat ones. There's actually a fantastic from, uh, uh, you can get it from Costco here in Vancouver, this like vegan queso and it's like super healthy. Um, it's crazy. So I've been doing that a lot, but um, like uh, there would be other options there. But I, I think if, that's the one thing that they're struggling with, but we're working on a bunch of dietary changes. I would just leave that for now. We can come back to that and, and work on it later. No, I like your approach. It's yeah. Um, doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? Yeah. Cool. Um, so another topic on your post here was all oils are unhealthy. Yeah. So, um, this is a lot of the vegans like to be in the, like the oil. Some have some allow olive oil. Some are very adamant that all oil is going to kill your endothelial function. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so there are studies looking at um, endothelial dysfunction, which is the uh, ability of your arteries to dilate mm -hmm. uh, after consuming oil and usually a large, large amount of oil. Um, and it is true that certain types of oils might impair the ability of your arteries to dilate for a certain uh, amount of time after meals. But the thing is that postprandial, that post-meal um, endothelial dysfunction has never been shown to actually contribute to, to cardiovascular disease. Um, now if you have endothelial dysfunction, just at rest, just at, at like fasting, you wake up in the morning, your arteries are already messed up then you've got problems. But if it's just post meal, it doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, at least it hasn't been shown to be a problem. That would be a more accurate way to say it. Um, now if we look at oil consumption and actual rates of disease, we find that, uh, consuming things like olive oil or even seed oils, as controversial as that is like canola oil and so on, uh, actually reduce risk of cardiovascular events or cardiovascular disease. Um, and that's probably because of a lot of the mono and polyunsaturated fats in there. They lower your LDL cholesterol. They're really beneficial in that way. Um, whereas things like saturated fats or, you know, in, in like coconut oil or palm oil, those can have a negative effect. So those can actually raise your LDL cholesterol, raise your cardiovascular disease risk. Uh, that's why things like butter are not back uh, as much as they want you to think it is. 
Um, so I, I just don't see the research really demonstrating that, that oils are going to be harmful in that way. Um, we do have data on low fat diets and reducing risk of cardiovascular disease, but we also have data on higher oil, uh, Mediterranean diets and reducing cardiovascular disease risk. So, um, I think either approach seems to be good. Okay. So as far as, um, your recommendations to your patients, again, I'm sure it probably depends, but is it a lot of patient preference? Like if your patients normally mm-hmm. cook with oil, then you allow them to use it a little bit, like it, it, it just Yeah. That, so it, it depends on that. It also depends mm-hmm. on goals. So the one instance where I do think oil should be limited, um, is with, uh, if weight management is, is a concern, right? So if, uh, if the patient's really working on, on that, they have goals to, uh, you know, lose uh, some body fat or, or whatever it might be. Um, then, then limiting oils, because they do come with a big caloric punch, 120 calories per tablespoon, um, that can definitely cut the calories quite a bit without trying to, without having to count them, uh, you know, religiously or anything like that. Okay. And do you think it's better to use certain oils cold and do you recommend certain oils to cook with? Um, so as far as the research goes, it seems, it seems that just using the oils period is beneficial. Now we can hypothesize that certain oils like extra virgin olive oil are better in a raw or low temperature state versus like avocado oil in a higher temperature state. Um, I don't think we have solid enough research to show either way. I think both would be beneficial overall. The, the question is just, is one even better than the other? And we don't really know, at least as far as I'm concerned, we don't know. Okay. No, thank you for your honesty and I'll mm-hmm. be watching. I'm sure you'll do a post on it if you come across any. Yeah. Research. If anything new comes out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So last big one here, I guess, is <laughs> the, um, the no or the claim that plant-based diets or a whole food plant-based diet, low fat in particular can clinically reverse heart disease. Mm-hmm. And this is often referenced to Dr. Esselstyn's stories and Dr. Dean Ornish's stories Mm -hmm. showing like we can actually see like the angiogram reversal of heart disease. And I know there's a lot of debate on this currently. Um, I'm just curious where you stand. Yeah. So um, just looking at uh, Esselstyn's and and for the record, not taking anything away from either of them. I think they've done a lot for the the movement, but um, for Esselstyn's studies, uh, Esselstyn's um, case series anyway, the 198 patients he put on plant-based diet, um, they looked at, they, they had like one angiogram in their, in the, um, case series that did show, you know, the artery open back up uh, a couple issues. So for one, that's, that's a, oh, my series went off here. <laughs> um, so there's one, uh, uh, one issue is that, that that's just one person. Uh, we can't, uh, we can't assume that that, um, you know, translates into the majority of them. Um, at the same time, the way that they took that angiogram, it, uh, angiograms can look different, even if with slight angle differences, the way they're taken. So it can look open from one angle. It can look closed from another angle. So again, one single angiogram isn't going to really prove anything that way. Um, at the end of the day, the people who stuck to the diet had a significantly reduced risk of having an event compared to those who didn't. Um, now it's not a perfect control group or anything, keeping all of that in mind and, and the way that they measured events, um, was definitely different than a lot of other studies that, that aside, um, uh, you know, the, the, the people who stuck with the diet had good results. Now, um, if we look at the Ornish study, um, that was a randomized controlled trial for starters, it wasn't even a vegan diet. So keeping in mind, I, I know a lot of vegans say the vegan diet, it wasn't, they had low fat dairy. Um, uh, they uh, also underwent other lifestyle changes. So, you know, exercise, uh, uh, social support, stress management, smoking cessation. Um, although only one of them smoked anyway, so that wasn't a big deal. Um, and 
they measured uh, plaque size using uh, quantitative coronary angiography. And for that to show reversal, there's actually a threshold in the change that needs to be seen to know that there's actually a change because there can be measurement error, like a simple change differences in measurement. Um, like you get two different people to, to measure and they can see that kind of difference uh, that, that they notice. It's a very small difference overall. Um, so that was one issue. Second, there are other better measurement tools we have right now that weren't used. Mind you, as an older study, I don't know when these other measurement tools came out. I'm not the expert there. So um, maybe at some point we redo a similar kind of study and we use newer technology to, to see how that goes. Um, but I don't think any of that matters because at the end of the five-year period, those who didn't, um, uh, you know, those in the control group had two and a half times the risk of having a cardiac event compared to those who stuck with the lifestyle program, right? That's what matters. It doesn't matter that a plaque shrunk or, or grew. What matters is, did you have a heart attack? And uh, obviously they had a significantly lower risk. Um, I think that's the, the big takeaway from that study, but everyone gets caught up in the, you know, did the plaque regress, did it not regress when um, I don't know that it matters at this point. Yeah. To your patient, your patient doesn't care if it's statistically yeah, significant yeah. or not, or yeah. they, they care if they're having a heart, heart attack in five years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. No, that's good. So for any patients with heart disease, you do still recommend the whole food plant-based diet then? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I definitely mm -hmm. recommend a plant-based approach. Now, if they find that too difficult, then something like a, a Mediterranean sort of approach is, is great as well. Like I'll give that as an option otherwise, but definitely the more that we can shift towards that plant-based diet, the more that we can emphasize those foods that we know can reduce risk like whole grains, uh, nuts and seeds and so on, uh, the better off they'll be. So um, I let them know all that, but some people want to take it step by step. Some people want to go all in. So it's totally going to depend. Okay, perfect. Um, all right. So I want to ask quickly about omega-3s. Mm -hmm. um, so some people think it uh, supplementing with omega-3s can help reduce risk of heart disease. Um, what do you think the research says on that? So, um, so there's a few different, there's actually multiple, several different types of omega-3s, but there's three main ones that we look at. Mm -hmm. Alpha-linolenic acid or ALA, um, eicosapentaenoic acid or EPA, and eicosahexaenoic acid or DHA. So ALA, EPA, DHA. Now ALA is the only type you'll find in plants. Um, so in flax, chia, walnuts, uh, hemp seeds, soy, um, then EPA and DHA are only going to be found in animal products and, um, and in large amounts in fish. So there is some research looking at blood levels of omega-3 fatty acids, and they find that those with higher EPA and DHA levels or higher what's called the omega-3 index score um, have lower risk of cardiovascular disease. However, we also know that those who eat more fish are going to have higher omega-3 status. We also know that those who eat more fish eat less meat. And we also know meat causes or contributes to it at the very least. Uh, cardiovascular disease, right? So it could just be that those with the highest uh, omega-3 scores have the lowest meat consumption because none of these studies account for that, like not a single one. Uh, that's a big issue. Uh, we also have a Cochrane review from uh, last year looking at all the different studies on, um, on omega-3s uh, uh, versus omega-6s versus different types of omega-3s versus saturated fat. And there's really only a consistent benefit in the studies where the omega-3s are replacing saturated fat. So that, again, plays into that theory I just kind of laid out for you. On top of that, we have what are called substitution analyses. So you look at what happens when you replace one kind of food with another type of food at the same amount of uh, calories and, 
and all of that. And you find that replacing fish with either beans, legumes, or uh, so bean, legumes, same thing, nuts or whole grains, and there is no difference. So there doesn't seem to be a benefit to having the fish. Um, uh, there's one in Japan actually where they found substituting fish uh, with plant uh, protein actually was beneficial, but that's probably because they were eating so much fish that they were crowding out some other foods. So getting more variety in there, more plants in there was a good thing. Um, so at the end of the day, it seems that this benefit attributed to, um, to these like EPA and DHA, especially for cardiovascular disease is driven by the fact that it replaces worse things. Mm. Um, now that's not to say that there isn't benefit for certain populations. So if you've had a heart attack before, if you're working on secondary prevention, um, the research does suggest there's a benefit. So in that population, it seems like a good idea. Uh, if you, uh, if you have mild cognitive impairments, there seems to be beneficial for brain function as well or cognitive function. Uh, if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, I'd say it's probably a good idea for certain outcomes related to the uh, uh, infant. Um, but outside of those, for a healthy adult eating a lot of plant-based omega-3s, I'm just not convinced that there is a benefit. Okay. No, thank you. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it at that then. I know, there, yeah, I know there's a lot of debate over it, but no, I appreciate that. So um, I'd like to get into just a little bit of athletics and performance here. Um, I know you're an athlete yourself. You're quite active. Um, so are there any top recommend, like if do you see any athletes in your practice would be my first yeah. question. Yeah, okay. yeah. And then how do your recommendations vary for athletes versus general population? Um, depending on the sport, want to make sure they're hitting certain protein thresholds. So if we're talking about like strength that uh, aim for 1.6 grams per kilogram of their body weight. Uh, that seems to be the point at which there's no further benefit. Um, so definitely taking care of that, um, looking at, depending on the type of sport, what their carbohydrate intake is, especially for endurance sports, we might even talk about like carb loading prior to events and, and that sort of thing. Um, overall nutrition is important, especially for women, making sure they're getting enough iron can be important. Uh, if they are, um, high level athletes, especially if they're running a lot, you get the, what's called foot strike hemolysis for like marathoners where their blood vessels burst and they lose iron. Um, there's a, there are certain considerations, but one of the, the base ones, especially for the plant-based athletes, I just want to make sure they're getting a, a good amount of protein in there because as much as we do talk in the space, I feel like a lot of like low protein diets and that, um, I do still think it's quite important, uh, especially for older age and for athletes. Okay. Um, so maybe a day in the life yourself, how do you hit your protein requirements? Um, do you have to give it extra thought or is it just... Not really. So I have, I, I eat just like a lot though. So it's, it's a little bit different for me compared to like, I eat these huge portions, like thousand calorie meals, but, um, it's so oatmeal, my oatmeal is just absolutely massive. This huge bowl. Um, and between like, you know, the flax and throwing hemp seeds on, on top of the oats, um, uh, with a few of the other things I toss in there, I do end up, uh, hitting 20 some odd grams there, 25 grams, we'll say. Um, for lunch, I could make a, a sandwich that has probably about 25 grams as well using tofu. Uh, and then I have um, bread that has about uh, eight grams per slice too. So it's like a lot of protein right there. Um, and then whatever I'm throwing in there, um, you know, you can, you can add on top of that. Uh, I've got, I, I do smoothies, really big smoothies sometimes where I'll throw in even like two cups of soy milk. That's 14 grams right there without all the other stuff that I'm throwing in the smoothie. Uh, again, I usually throw more like hemp seeds and, and other things as well. We'll say another 20, 25 grams by the end of the day. 
And then for dinner, I'll have some kind of legume centered dish with maybe quinoa, maybe rice. Quinoa would have more protein. And I could probably hit another 20, 25. Like I end up with about a hundred grams a day, which is about 1.6 grams per kilogram for me. Um, and, or like, I, I have no issue adding in a protein powder if I, if I needed to as well. Um, actually just very recently picked one up just to try it. I hadn't taken, I hadn't taken protein powder in, uh, I don't know, 10 years at least. Like it's been a very, very long time since I've ever even touched a protein powder. Um, but I decided to pick it up cause I heard it tastes good. And I figured, Oh, I just make it that much easier to hit those targets. And not that I was thinking about it a lot prior anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like it. I like that it's this iron vegan. I love the flavor and everything. So yeah, it's, it's, it's convenient sometimes, like sometimes yeah. you're just in a rush, you just throw it in. Yeah. I, I find it super good for like, I've been, um, I don't know if you probably know, I've been like immunizing here in Vancouver. So mm-hmm. I've been a lot of COVID immunization shifts and, um, and they're like 12 hours long. And sometimes if I just want something really quick on a break, I just have it mixed with soy milk and I'll just have that, you know, just to fill me up for a bit. And so it's convenient in that sense too. That says a lot about a protein powder, if it's good with just soy milk, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I know you you mentioned at the beginning that you do, um, you have some experience in physical medicine and sports injuries and the like. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious, have you noticed any correlations between a patient's diet and then their ability to like bounce back from injury? This is more I just see, my curiosity. I see, I see so many plant-based athletes that or plant-based people in general that I don't have enough of a sample, yeah. I think. For those, like, look, if someone has an injury and they're looking to see someone, they aren't going to specifically seek me out. Uh, as much as I do have expertise in that area, they they typically they'll find who's close to them or who they've heard about from their friends or whatever. So the people who are coming to me for those sorts of issues are typically already plant based. Um, so it's just I don't have the the sample size. Um, but I mean, I, I've definitely heard heard uh, stories from actually, uh, there was a plantrician one year. I can't remember if that was last year or the year before there was a, no, not last year. I, I didn't attend because it was canceled or the in-person was canceled. Uh, but I think the year before that there was a, um, orthopedic surgeon and he was talking about, uh, um, some like, like the data on like arthritis and dietary patterns and, and that, um, and it seemed to be good for plant-based diets as well. So, um, I'm sure we're going to see more, uh, in the coming years, uh, especially with more people, adopt a plant-based diet, but I just don't think we have a lot of research yet. And I don't have the sample size myself to really tell. Yeah. Thanks for your honesty. Um, are there any, I guess, supplements or any key nutrients that you would tell an injured athlete to really like make sure they're getting enough of? Um, hmm. Injured athlete. I mean, uh, more than anything, it's rest at that point, um, rest and then rehab. I, I don't think there's any kind of magic nutrient. I don't think there's anything as far as nutrition that changes. I think that's the best way to say, I don't think there's anything all of a sudden different about their needs. Um, there's some research on, on things like joint pain and protein intake, maybe, uh, but nothing like super earth shattering as far as I'm aware. And there might be, I just haven't seen it. I mean, who knows? So keep following your healthy overall diet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, well, thank you. You've been super generous, like squeeze me in. I know you're doing a lot of podcast interviews today. Um, but just as we close out, what is one thing that you would like people listening to take away from this conversation? Um, that, you know, I've said it a few times, but just making those steps towards a more plant-based diet, uh, is, is beneficial no matter where you're starting from, no matter what your end goal is, uh, that sort of transition is going to be beneficial for your overall health, for your overall disease risk. Um, and you don't need to, to, you don't need to take giant leaps at a time either. You can take really small steps. You can start one meal at a time, one snack at a time, if you want to, uh, and then just, just work towards those goals in the end. 
Perfect. So if anyone's listening, would like to reach out, connect with you, um, maybe see you in practice if they're in the Vancouver area, where can they find you? Yeah. If you're in British Columbia, actually, you can see me either in person or online um, as a patient and you can get that info through drmatthewnagra.com. So drmatthewnagra.com. On Instagram, you can follow me at drmatthewnagra. So dr.matthewnagra. Also on Twitter uh, under my name, on Facebook under my name. you can feel free to you know, send me a message if you have any questions. I'm pretty responsive that way. Um, or just follow along and see what I post about next. I think my next one's going to be on fatty liver. And then I don't know. I, I plan them out like a month in advance. So got a bunch of stuff lined up. That's awesome. I'm always excited to read about it. So yeah. looking forward to it. So thank you again for uh, coming on the show. It's been great. No problem. Thanks for having me. Hopefully uh, see you in person soon. I hope so. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.